0: take your Bibles and join me. Not in the book of Job, but in the book of Acts. The book of Acts. The next two weeks we have a special meetings and speaker and so I want to shift gears just for this week in the book of Acts. But while you're turning to Acts chapter 17, I want to ask you this question. You ever see this statue before? Yes? No? What's it called? What's he thinking about? Do you realize, do you realize we know This was not the complete structure and statue all by itself. Actually, it was a part of a much larger sculpture that was done by August Rodin in the late 1880s. What he had done is he had done this entire wall. And the thinker is just one character on this wall at the very top of it that is looking down over the gates displayed below. He had designed this 20 foot sculpted piece, this one wall, to be put in a museum in France that was to be built, and it was supposed to be their major display. Well what had happened is after it took a few years for Rodin to do what he did. it took him thirty seven years and he never completed the entirety of this sculpted work. The, sta- the, uh, the whole thing did not end up in the museum because the museum was never built after all. the funding fell through, and so what Rodin did is he took that one character up there and then he he started making larger casts of it, and that became the most popular piece of this entire structure and ended up that's what he lived on for years. The entire structure is the thinker is looking down at the gates of hell. It's all having to do with Dante's Divine Comedy, that whole idea of people being standing before God in Judgment Day. And the thinker, he said, he put him up here to be thinking about what about my eternal destiny? Paul is preaching in the book of Acts, and as he's going through missionary journeys, he comes to a group of people who have never thought about Judgment Day, who haven't thought about a lot of these major, major thoughts of of where will I spend eternity. It's a group of thinkers. The scholars of the day, they would gather in the city of Athens, which was supposed to be the most scholarly group and setting in the ancient world, and they would gather at what's called Mars Hill, or the Aragopagus, and they would gather and they would consider all kinds of different philosophies and thoughts. The Stoics, the Epicureans, they would all be there, and they would give their different ideas. Well, Paul comes into the city, and as he comes in, according to the Acts 17, he comes in and he's amazed by the number of statues that they have around the entire city. And he notices one statue, and that statue is dedicated to the unknown God. They didn't want to miss any. They didn't want to overlook a God. So they had one statue to the unknown God. And some of these people listening to Paul and hearing him speak, he, they decide, well, we want Paul to come up and he's going to speak. And this was their common practice. If they heard somebody sharing a philosophy or religious view, let's have him come up and give him the diaz for a moment and let him tell his things and we could debate with him. So that's what is happening in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is all of a sudden giving, given the opportunity to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he uses that statue that's dedicated to the unknown God to get these people to think deeply about Judgment Day. Well, join me as we read some of the section of Acts chapter 17 and jump down to verse 18. It says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, "What will this babbler say?" Others, some um, others, some of them said, "He seems to be a setter forth of a new or strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection." So they took him. They brought him unto the Areopagus, and saying, "May we know what this new doctrine, wherever you speak, is?" For You bring certain strange things to our ears, we would know thereof what these mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and he said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him... I'm going to declare unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of the heaven and the earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needs anything, seeing he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds or the limitations of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by the arts or man's devices. So he's given us some information. These people, when he starts talking to them and sharing with them, what he does is he gives them some remarks about God. We'll just do this in a simple outline form. His remarks and then their response and we'll work through it that way. He talks to them about God being the creator of all things. He talks to them in this text about God being transcendent is the theological term we use. What we mean by that is that God is not like the Greek gods, that he walked on the face of the earth and interacted and did evil things and lied and was deceptive. Nor our God is transcendent in that God is above all things. He's not, he's not like us, that he has limitations. He's infinite. He's an individual who has all knowledge. He's much more than we are. He's not a people with power. He's not a super DC comic book character. He's God, he's creator. He talks about him being imminent. What we mean by that is he is present. He is not some distant being living on Olympus and not caring what goes on. No, our God is involved. The passage even talks about how he's made it very clear that God has put some limitations, determined at times, that he is giving breath, that he is not far from every one of us, it's said. That the Lord is aware. In fact, God is so aware of you and me that he knows the hairs of our heads. He's so involved in, in our lives and so, so considerate of us that he knows our needs. God is sovereign. He has determined limitations. He has put boundaries, the passage says, that he is in total control, that he is always in control. This is the God he wants the people to know about. He wants them to see that he is above all the different deities they worship, that he is different than all of them, that he is this pure, holy, unhuman-like being, and yet we are made in his image. He talks about him being intimate, that this God wants a relationship, that, ha- that we can know him, that he is not far from us, that we can seek after him and have a personal relationship with him, and know him, and understand him, and he's revealed himself, and all about himself in the word of God. So he's given all that information about God in setting up a case that he wants them to be thinking, like the thinker about their own eternal destiny. That leads him to the next statement. The next statement, uh, right beyond what we read, is where he goes on and makes the further comment. He says, And at the times, verse 30, of this ignorance, that is, your lack of understanding of God, he winked at. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given us the assurance unto all men that he will judge, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And so he makes it very clear that God is the judge. This God that you say you don't know about, you better get to know him because he's going to be your judge one day. It's not going to be Zeus. It's not going to be uh, Apollo. It's going to be This God that I'm telling you about, He is your judge. And so He makes it very clear that He's going to judge everyone, even the Athenians, as well as the Romans, as well as the Jews. He's going to judge the entire world one day. He tells them that the one who is going to carry out the judgment is through a man who has been ordained, a one person. That is appointed. That one person is clearly Jesus Christ because he says he has given us the assurance that this man, this judge, is the one who's resurrected from the dead. And so he tells us that God is one day going to judge us. He makes it very clear to this audience that he has never heard before they need to prepare for judgment day. Now, what happens when we say this is some people get upset. Some people don't like us to talk about this. In fact, in churches today, there's a tendency that says, let's not talk about God having anger. Let's not talk about God being a God of wrath. Let's just focus on God being a God of love. Friend, he is love. God is love. But God is also a God who has wrath. He talks about the wrath of God being upon us. That is, upon our sin. And God condemning it. And I understand that many people don't like to hear that and even probably some who may be here this morning have already tuned me off because I'm not speaking about all the niceties and all the feel goods that you wanted to hear this morning. But there is a reality that we will face God one day. There is judgment day. In fact, when God has judgment day, he will call people into question for their, not only what they do, but their very words and thoughts. And God will... By in that judgment day, he will render to people what they deserve unless they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this isn't popular. A religious survey just recently done by Lifeway Research went through America and got a sampling of them and said, what does America today believe about Jesus Christ? They have watered down the gospel in so many ways. Well, in America, there is still a percentage of the majority that believe Jesus is God. But I'm more fearful of the 40% who don't believe Jesus is God. What's happening in churches? We're only 60%. God accepts all types of worship, true or false. The response in this survey was that 65% of Americans say anything goes for worship. But our Bible says neither is there salvation in any other than Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. Americans do sin at times, but inherently, that is, by their nature. That they themselves, left to themselves, they are good people. Our Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the standard of God. There is how many good? None. Well, according to this survey, 65% of Americans say that Americans are basically good. Okay. According to this survey, there is a heaven. Well, a lot of Americans believe that. 74%. Now the question is, is there a hell? Okay, now when we get to this, only 58% believe there is a hell. Now let me add a stat to this. The most recent survey done of seminaries in America, the five largest seminaries in America, the survey result is, what percent of the future preachers do not believe there is a hell? 71%. This survey, will God judge people and will some then end up going to hell? The conclusion was only 40% believe people will end up in hell. The conclusion of this, of those who claim to be born again, evangelicals are those like you who claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven, I'm born again. How many evangelicals would say all people will eventually end up in heaven? What number should it be? should be zero. Not all people will end up in heaven. Correct? Okay. Now how many does God want in heaven? All. How many will end up? Only those who are born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Of those who claim to be Bible followers, evangelicals, who say everyone's going to get there one day. Wow is right. If you believe that, you have no reason. If you believe everybody's going to end up in heaven, you have no reason to share the gospel. But that's not what we've been told. We've been told to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Why? Because a man, a woman, a child must be born again. None of us get to heaven in and of our own. And yet, can you see the trend that's happening in America? Talking about judgment, talking about hell is unpopular, is it not? Not. There's a couple of preachers that responded to this that I appreciate, and they've written over the years. It's not recent writings. But there was one individual, J.L. Packer, wrote this. One of the most striking things about the Bible is that both the Old and New Testament emphasize the reality and terror that God is going to judge people one day. He says that it's a fact. We can't get away from it. If we're going to say we're going to be Bible believers, we have to come to the conclusion there's Judgment Day. And though it's a scary thing, it is going to be a reality. That's what Paul is preaching. Here in the book of Acts, A.W. Joseph said, The hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opium for the consciences of millions. People need to understand that there is judgment and they need to prepare. People need to hear it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. It's It's not a fun thought, but it's a reality. We need to understand The one preacher put it this way. The church today often wants to make God appear less offensive. They attempt to sweeten the gospel so more people would take a sip. But in the end, they fail to do what Jesus did. Over and over and over again, Jesus warned people of a coming judgment. If we are going to be true followers of Christ, we need to give the same message that Paul gave. Repent because of Judgment Day that's appointed. And yet, there's many who say, I don't want to come to church and hear that. There are many who say, I, 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 I don't want to tell my friends that because they may not like me. It's not about whether they like you, it's whether you love them enough to share the truth with them. Do you care enough to let them know of something that is not pleasant, but is a reality? Do you care enough about your neighbor's that you live next door to, that they might end up in an eternal hell unless they hear the truth and you have the truth and you're 30 feet away from their house and you don't tell them? Paul said, we need to talk about this because he knew that Jesus did. Let me just give you a sample, just a sample of what Jesus said about the future. Jesus said this, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all the nations. Why? He goes on, he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd shall divide his sheep from his goats. Why? Because he says some will come and stay on his right side into everlasting joy. Some he will say, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for his devil's For the devil and his angels. Do you realize what Jesus believes? Jesus believed in a judgment day. Jesus believed in some people are going to be damned because of their lack of belief. He preached it. What else did he say about it? This is just in one section of scripture only, just from the book of Matthew. This is no overlap of verses. I just want you to get a sense of how genuine Jesus was in his concern about people and his belief in what could happen to them if they don't come to him in faith. He says this, okay? I'll give you quotes in a second. He spoke more about hell than any other Bible character. Go through Scripture and come back. Jesus said more things about hell. He spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Jesus Christ warned about this, this fact that it is a reality. It is going to happen. And in some of those passages, like in chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, some are going to be in danger of hellfire. He gets further on in another section of preaching. Some will be cast into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later on, he told his men, go out and preach the word. Fear not them that can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Jesus further said, In another sermon, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. They shall be cast into a furnace of fire, where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said further, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from the just, and they shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus further said, Some will be cast into everlasting fire, to be cast into I have hellfire. He further said, some will be cast into outer darkness. He further said, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He further said, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In another sermon. He further said, cast the unprofitable into outer darkness, telling about a future judgment. He said, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said, there shall be everlasting punishment. He said, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil. What does that tell us? Jesus spoke a lot about this hell. He spoke a lot about this reality of judgment. In other words, hell is a real place. It's not fictional, friends. It's not Hollywood. It's not make believe. These are from the words of Jesus Christ that He says hell is real. Hell is not only real, it's really bad. It's a terrible place. I know we joke about it. I know you've heard people. I said it before I was saved. Oh, if I go to hell, I'll take a six-pack with me and we'll have a party in hell with all my friends. That is not the hell that Jesus described. Jesus described it as being outer darkness, a, plane of, a place of gnashing of teeth where there's pain and agony, that it is isolation. It is a place of punishment. It's not a place of party. He talks about it being painful. He talks over 20 times that it's a place of hell fire. Even though there's darkness, he described it as a literal place of this pain. It's a place that is eternal. It's everlasting. I know there's popular doctrines that says, oh no, people will go to hell for a period of time. And then after they've paid for their sins in hell, they'll get out and they'll be able to go to heaven. But Jesus repeatedly said, which we just read, into everlasting fire, everlasting fire, everlasting fire. Jesus tells the account of a rich man and Lazarus, that when they, one was in hell, the rich man, he lifted up his eyes in pain and agony and torments, and he cries out, give me just one drop of water. And then he, when he's talking back and forth to Abraham, who they can see over this chasm of, of space, he says, I cannot come. We cannot go from place to place. Hell is a permanent habitation for those who do not get ready for judgment day. We don't want you to be there permanently. We don't want anyone to be there permanently. Why? Because like God, we are not willing that any should perish. But if you don't repent, that's what Paul says in this text. He says to these scholars, to these intelligent people who think that they've got the world's knowledge in their mind that they possess so much, he says, you've, you've not even recognized God. The God who created you. The God who wants to have a relationship with you. You don't even know who he is. And you better know him. He can be known. You need to know him because one day you're going to stand before him. And he's going to judge you. He's appointed a time for that. Jesus went on in other comments about this. Jesus said, hey listen, here's how bad it is. It's so bad that he says, those of you who have heard the word of God. Chorazin, Bethsaida. He says to them, that you who have heard the truth, and I think this, this applies to a lot of people in America who have heard the word of God as well, who have heard the truth, he says, you know what? In that day, it'll be better for those in Sodom and Gomorrah who didn't have the Bible and didn't have the Messiah come and preach them. It'll be better. In other words, there's different levels of degree of punishment in hell. How that works, I don't know, but that's what Christ says. And Christ says that if you hear the truth, you will be held more accountable than somebody who has never heard. In fact, he says it on more than one occasion, that he talks about this idea that judgment is going to be serious for those who have opportunity to hear the word, to know about Jesus Christ, and they reject. He also made this comment, that hell is such a bad place, you ought to do whatever it takes to make sure you don't go there. He's talking to a group of people at one time. He says, if your right hand is causing you, you know, whatever you're doing in your life, in your business, or whatever it is, but what he means by what you're doing in your right hand, if it is keeping you from putting faith in Christ, he says, hey, what you never, if it's your right eye, your right hand, whatever it be, he says, pluck it out, cut it off. It'll be better for you to live in this life maimed than to end up with your entire spirit body in hell forever and ever. He says that not only once. But he says it again later on. He repeats it to an audience. If your hand or foot stumble you or cause you not to want to believe, maybe it's who you're hanging around with, who you're walking with. Maybe it's what jobs you're doing. Maybe it's your career. He says, cut them off. It's the idea of doing something drastic. It's not literally maiming yourself. It's the idea of do whatever it takes. To put out of your life whatever is keeping you back from believing in Christ and trusting in him, it is better to be maimed in this life, to not have as many friends, to not make as much money, to, to have people make fun of you. It is better to have, to have that happen to you than having two hands two feet and be in an everlasting fire. If your eyes and he, he repeats this thought multiple times because it's so important, it's clear. It's absolutely clear. Jesus believed in eternal hell. Don't you? Jesus believed it. Jesus repeatedly warned others about it. Do you? But he wasn't the only one, the apostle Paul. In fact, go back to Acts chapter 17. Paul, when he tells them in verse 31 about God appointing a day in which he will judge the world by righteousness, what does Paul ask them to do? Go back to verse 30. In light of that judgment day, he says, here's his request. He says in verse 30, But now God commands all men everywhere to do one thing. What is it? To repent. To repent. Now that repent is this idea. That you're living a certain way and you repent of your sin means, Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to continue that way. That way leads to destruction. That way is going to get me in trouble on judgment day. You turn around and you do something different. It might be this. It might be that you're following whatever you want. You're, you're following your own ideas about religion. You're following and you're saying, uh, you know, I'm baptized, that's going to get me to heaven. Or you're saying, I'm going to be just a nice person, good person, that's going to get me to heaven. And you realize there is none good. There is none of us righteous or good enough to get into heaven. And you turn and you say, I need Jesus Christ. And you go to him. And you go back that way. But not only do you need to repent, you need to rely upon Jesus Christ. He has said in this text, as you read further, that there is assurance, there is confidence, there is the absolute truth that there's going to be a a judgment day. All proven by Jesus Christ rising from the dead, giving him the authority and the power to be the judge over us. Jesus said this, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he that believes not the Son shall not see life. Note the wrath of God. We don't want to talk about it. We want to talk about God being being just loving, loving all the time. The wrath of God is a reality. God hates sin. And he will condemn the sin and not let us into heaven unless our sin is taken care of. The wrath of God would abide on him. When I was 16 years old, I didn't know this. I thought everybody's going to get to heaven one day. That's what my church taught me. They taught me that one day, even if I have to go to purgatory for a few years, I'll eventually get out and I'll be able to go to heaven. But then somebody showed us these verses. And these verses ring true from the word of God. That either we put our faith totally in Jesus Christ, not our church, not our baptism, not ourselves, but in Jesus Christ and him alone and ask him to be our savior, not ourselves, not our parents, not our kids, not our pastors, but Jesus, please be my savior. Unless we do that, the wrath of God abides upon us. For me as a 16 year old, that was kind of scary. And that was a good scary It was a reality that helped me to understand that one day I'm going to face God, and God has given me a warning through the words of Jesus Christ. Will I listen to them? But it's all because of what Jesus has done. How Jesus and his blood saves us. There's a true account that comes out of World War II. In World War II, when the Germans went into regions like Poland, they would take a lot of the Polish people and put them in concentration camps or work camps. And what they would do is in Germany, they had gotten rid of the typhoid epidemics for the last f- decade or two. There hadn't been any cases. And what they wanted to do is make sure that that, would not, that typhus would not arise and start another epidemic. So they would periodically do testing, even of the prisoners or even of those in work camps because they thought if that one person with typhus shows up, we've got to make sure it's dealt with or we're going to have a new epidemic in Germany because people don't have the natural immunities anymore. Uh, we're just careful about this. And so what they did is they started doing some tests. And they would do what you see up there, the Wild Felix blood test, to determine do they have typhus or not. Well, they got to this one village in Poland and they took a few people out and they brought these people in towards the ghettos and they were going to make them in work camps. But before they put them in the work camps, they did the test. And one of them tested for typhus. So they sent that person back. And then they tested the next person. Same thing. They decided we better send all of those people back, those few people. And then they went to the village. And they started testing the people in the village of Dal, or however you say it. They went back and they started testing and they found a number of the villagers were testing positive for for this typhus. And they thought, oh, oh, this is an epidemic. We need to quarantine that entire village and the region around and keep them separate. So those people never ended up in the work camps or the concentration camps. They ended up staying at home and going about their life while many of their neighbors and friends were being put away into these camps. Only after the war was it revealed what had happened. There was two doctors in that region who found a way to put an injection in of a certain serum that if they would inject into a person, it would make a false positive for that typhus uh, test. And they were injecting everyone in the village and in the countryside, as many as they could, and those people were now showing up with a false positive, though they never had the epidemic. It was the blood that provided their protection for dozens and dozens of people who survived because of this false positive. There's a different type of blood that doesn't give a false positive but actually corrects an issue each and every one of us has. We have a sin problem. But Jesus Christ shed his blood that our sin could be taken away so that when we stand before the Lord we can be rescued from damnation by the blood of Jesus Christ. There are multiple verses. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why in the Old Testament they had to do sacrifices to show that something had to give its life in place of your sin or whoever was coming to make the sacrifice. Well, the author of Hebrews said, then if they did that with bull, bulls and goats, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot, totally innocent, totally sinless, offered himself, he will purify your conscience from the dead works to serve the the living God. And he goes on throughout this book of Hebrews talking about the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ. It is so much better. It is the eternal offering. It is God had to be given once and for all a singular sacrifice that if you call upon Christ, he would in the spiritual realm cover you with his blood so that your sins are totally forgiven. We read about that elsewhere where Jesus, that last night of the last supper, he said, this cup, Is poured out for you. And he's not talking about the glass that he was holding up. He was talking about what it represents. This is my blood, which is given for you so that you could have a covenant. A relationship with God Almighty. We read where it's written by the Apostle John, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's not baptism. It's not church membership. It's not being an American. It's not having good looks or lots of money. It's Jesus Christ giving his life that covers our sins. It's him and him alone. Paul wrote, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of of God's grace. If Jesus hadn't died for us, we would end up in hell. All of us. But because Jesus gave his life and when he sacrificed and his life was pouring out through his blood and when he calls out and he says, it is paid in full. We have hope of forgiveness. Only through Jesus Christ we need to ask him, trust him, and him alone to be the forgiver of our sins, the cover of our evils that we have done in our mind, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Jesus is the only one who can forgive us our sins. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ told us all this. Paul is warning his audience. He's saying, you're going to stand before God one day in judgment. And the basic question is, what did you do with Jesus? Are you trusting yourself or are you trusting Jesus? The response of the crowd as they are listening is interesting. We read about the crowd there, which is probably the same type of response we get here this morning. It says that when they heard, verse 32, of the resurrection of the dead, some of them started to mock. And others said, we will hear thee again on this matter. Here's what some of the reaction is. Some ridiculed. It can't be true. It can't be true. I'm not that bad. I, I, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm going to make it on my own. What pride. It's Jesus. Jesus didn't need to. They ridiculed that Jesus. It can't be true that he was virgin born. Can't be true he resurrected from the dead. But it is. But some ridicule. Some will Procrastinate. I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it when I get to be an old man. When I get to be an older woman. When I, when I have my own family. Then I'll, t- then I'll think about being, being you know, concerned about Judgment Day. And yet you don't know. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know what the day may bring forth. But then some believed. We read in the text that it says that when Paul departed, howbeit certain men clave unto him, and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman Damaris, and others with them. The Areopagite is this guy was one of the Supreme Court judges. He was one of the leaders of the city, but he believed, despite his scholarship, despite his, his position. We don't know anything about the woman Damaris other than she became a believer. But the fact is, others believed. They accepted the truth. The question comes down to, will you? Will you? In uh, some of the ancient ruins in, uh, in Rome in the region, there are inscriptions on some of the tombs and one of them that they find repeatedly is this, this abbreviation of the letters NF, NS, and C. They realize as history gone by what this comes from. There was a Roman uh, thinker, Epicurus, who had the, this quote I was not, and I, you have the Latin there I was, but I am not now, I'm dead. And then is, I care not. And his whole idea is that in death, nothing matters. You don't care. Everything is just done. When you die, you're done. But that's not true according to scriptures. According to scriptures, when we die, we continue to live. We either live in heaven or we live in hell. It's our choice. And when you think about this quote, this idea, here's what we have from scripture. Scripture. In death, you will still be. You are still existing after you die. Every one of us, when, when, we, when we pass away, our body does, but our spirit continues. As well, you're going to be somewhere. You can't say, I'm not. No, no, you're going to be somewhere. You're either going to be in heaven or you're going to be in hell. And you will care where you be. You will know where you're at and you will care. The rich man in hell, he cared desperately. Not only did he care that he was in hell, but he cared, please send somebody to warn my five brothers that they don't come here with me. Now he was really concerned about spiritual things in life. The only thing he cared about was money, money, money. My question to you is, do you know where you will spend eternity? Are you absolutely sure you know where you will spend eternity? Do you know what's going to happen when you stand before God in judgment day? Will he say, come be on my right hand? Or will he say, depart from me, you cursed. I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. Well, God wants you to respond like Dionysius did. He wants you to believe. He doesn't want you to end up in hell. But you determine whether you hang on to your sin or let Christ wash it away by his blood. You have to believe. You know, you come to think of it, God may have arranged in your life for you to be here this day to hear this message so that you would consider Judgment Day. Is it possible for God to arrange situations for people to hear the truth? James Montgomery Boyce, preacher out of Philadelphia, talks about a time that he was holding meetings in Minneapolis. And he was going there with a gentleman who used to be one of his assistants, and when he got there, they were holding the the meetings like we will next weekend, and he was going to be preaching. And he said, here's a true story. It sounds unbelievable, but it's a true story. What happened? Right next to that little church in downtown Minneapolis, there was a man who lived there for a number of years. People from the church would frequently invite that man who, on Sundays, would be working in his lawn, things like that. They'd invite him to come to church, and he would say, nope. Nope, nope, nope. I worship God my own way. I don't believe. Nope, 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 nope. And he would never come, never come. But they kept on inviting him, inviting him, inviting him. And so when Boyce was there, what they did one evening is they had a special musical service. And then they were going to follow it up with the preaching. And so that man is out working in his yard, and he's hearing the music. He's hearing the specials being done. And he loves music. So he decides, I'm going to go to that church service, and I'm going to go in and just listen to the music inside. And so he got dressed up, went to the church next door, walked in, and sat down, and the music played, and he loved the music. It was beautiful, it was harmonious, it was very pleasant, very soothing, and he enjoyed it. But he was so engrossed in the music part of the program, he didn't realize that others had come in as well, and now he couldn't get out of the pew. He picked a corner, and now he couldn't get out. So he thought, okay, the preacher's getting up, and I don't want to hear any preaching, So he did this. Can you imagine somebody sitting in the service next to you like this? And he plugged his ears. Boy said he was preaching away, and this man sat there through the time insisting he wasn't going to listen, wasn't going to listen, wasn't going to listen. And then wouldn't you know how God has a sense of humor? God sent a fly. All of a sudden this fly is buzzing this guy's nose and lands on the guy's nose. He's trying to get rid of it. After a few minutes... He has to do this. And just then, the preacher says, he that has ears, let him hear. And he was stunned. He was stunned by what he heard. And he listened to the rest of the message. The man came forward and got saved. Can God do something strange like working that? We're in the old building that's over here on 422. And this is back in like 81. Um, yes. 1981, not 1881. Okay, we're over in that building. And some of you who were with us at that time, remember in the summertime what we would do to cool off the building? We had huge fans that were pedestal fans about this big around. It sounded like a jet plane. We have one here and one at the front and one at the back, and we would blow it around. And so that Sunday my brother was on vacation, so I was preaching. And um, a gentleman came in by the name of Bob. And he came in for a first-time visitor, and he sat right over in this section of the of the auditorium, which it was only this wide. He sat right over here, and right above him was our speakers, which uh, you know, which we had these old speakers hanging on the wall. But that morning, the speakers weren't real clear; they were crackling for the time, and the fan was right there as well. So Bob said, who had a hard hearing, Bob said, I came into the church service, I'm sitting there and my hair is being blown back you know, because of the fan and I'm trying to listen but I hear crackling and it's in and out, in and out, in and out. And all of a sudden in the service, there was a moment that the fan stopped. Don't know why. Somebody kicked the cord away. The fan stopped and the speaker worked. And I made a comment from the pulpit, if I'm not mistaken, I made the comment that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by him you must be born again. And then the fan went back on. And the speaker went back to its and Bob said, I didn't hear anything else in that whole service. But I heard that. At the end of the service, he sat there, sat there, sat there so I went over and introduced myself. We started talking. And he told me, this is the only thing I heard. And I believe I need to do something. I don't know what. Can you show me what I need to do to go to heaven? Well, I guess I could. Yeah. (laughs) We sat there, and he got saved. That Thursday night, I went and visited him, and we led his wife and two children to the Lord. Can God arrange circumstances for you to hear truth that you need to hear? Sure he can. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe that's why you're watching here on the streaming. Because God wants you to be born again. You know, God doesn't just want you to be born again. He wants your friends, your family, your neighbors to be born again. He wants you to do like Paul did. Take the warning. Tell others. Let them know. Don't just say, okay, this is something that I'm so glad I did, but I'm going to keep it to myself. If you've got good news, share it. Share it. Let people know Jesus Christ will forgive them of their sins. When's the last time you handed out a track? When's the last time you sat with a relative and said, I'm concerned about your eternal destiny. Do you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? When's the last time you talked to one of your co-workers and told them that you were born again and tell them how? The bottom line is, you need to be thinking about these thoughts. The thoughts about where you're going to spend eternity. You need to be thinking about your friends and where they're going to spend eternity, your family, your grandkids, your cousins, your your nephews, nieces. Be concerned like Jesus was. Be concerned like Paul was. Let people know. You've all heard of the Johnstown flood, have you not? That flood that occurred out Western PA. Yes, any of you recall? Not recall. You You weren't there, but you all know the story. How there was the raging waters, rains for several days, filled up the dam there at South Fork Reservoir, and it finally ruptured and it went going down that mountain through that valley, and 2,000 and some odd number of people were killed that night. You remember hearing about that? Did you know that a group of wealthy Americans bought all the land around the reservoir just the year or two before? They had made it as their summer resort. They even owned the rights to the reservoir. But they didn't want to invest money in patching up the dam. Instead of patching it with the, what they would have for concrete at the time, they would use straw and mud whenever a little break was. And because they were more concerned about keeping their finances, the dam went into disrepair as time went by and was one of the contributing factors to the flood killing hundreds and hundreds of people because they were more concerned about their money than other people? You say, how could they do that? Well, then how can you be more concerned about money than sharing the truth with your coworkers? How can you be more concerned about enjoying your summer vacation spot than letting others know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? You might sit here and say, well, that's only happened in days gone by. Can I take it just a couple years ago? A few years ago? 2014. A group of engineers in northern India, a group of students in the school there, a number of them went for this outing, and they were going to go down this river area. And as they were going down this river area and just checking out rocks and geological things, they're walking down this river in this area that's by Himachi, and they're going along. And all of a sudden, upriver the people in charge of the dam up river decide that they're going to let some water out just to relieve relieve the pressure those young people are in the in the riverbed and it's not going to be a problem they do this reg- regularly but when they let the water out it got away from them and more of the water came out than what they expected and they never blew the whistle they never gave a warning And tons of water came gushing through this gorge where these students were. And it took them several days before they found all 24 of the bodies that were swept away. Because somebody didn't warn them. Because those up there were preoccupied with their other things and they didn't blow the whistle. Are you blowing the whistle for others to hear that Jesus Christ can rescue them from the raging torrents of Judgment Day. Judgment Day is coming. Hell is a reality. Are you, are you sure you know where you're spending eternity? Are you doing something to help others know for sure they're going to heaven? Next week, we'll preach the gospel with Brother Joe here. You take advantage of those moments.